So today, I just want to remind you where we were last time. Last week in our study in Matthew, we learned how believers should be those who confess Christ all the days of their lives. This week, you and I are going to learn in this passage that confessing Christ in this age is going to lead to division and strife. Now, one of the great lies that I think has been foisted upon the church in the really the last five decades is that the gospel of Christ only brings peace and unity. We find out today that that's not true. Today we learn that Christ's message is inherently offensive to those who are perishing, yet you and I are to continue giving it. Why? Because Jesus Christ's name needs to be honored and his gospel proclaimed. And so as we pick it up here, in Matthew 10, 34 to 36, Jesus is explaining that his first coming brings strife and not peace. Notice what he says. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now, dear ones, notice in the beginning in verse 34, Jesus says, do not think. And that should tip us off to the fact that he is correcting the wayward thinking, not only of his followers, but I think of many of the Jewish contemporaries in his day. You see, many Jews in Jesus' day, they thought when the Messiah comes, that just brings peace. There's only going to be peace when the Messiah comes comes. What they didn't understand was that there were going to be actually two comings of the Messiah, the first to remove sin and the second time to crush the enemies and bring the kingdom. And peace only comes after the second coming. So yes, there's a correction here in our thinking. If we think that the gospel came to bring peace, notice his correction. He said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, dear ones, don't think or misunderstand that Jesus is somehow saying that the sum total reason for him coming the first time was simply to bring strife and division. No, what he is saying is that strife and division was always to be, in a sense, a natural byproduct of his coming into the world to save his people from their sins. That's what we should understand. Now, here, dear ones, Jesus is clearly correcting anyone who has the idea that the gospel only brings peace and unity. It does not. Oftentimes, when you teach something like this, a Christian, well-meaning, will say to you, Hey, Eric, what about the striving for the unity of the faith that we're called to in Ephesians 4.13. Well, yes, there is going to be unity amongst people who believe the gospel. But what Jesus is showing us is there really will be no peace universally in this age with those who have rejected the gospel. Now, notice verse 35. Again, we have an explanatory for. Jesus is going to give a citation proving his point from Micah 7.6. Jews in Jesus' day took that passage and they believed it was associated with the messianic woes. That's the time period just prior to the return of Christ as we know it. Well, Jesus here is again correcting that, showing us, no, these are things that happen during the church age. Notice what he says. He says, for I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, etc. Notice the term set. This is what we call in theology a hot pox legomena. 
That's right, a hapox legomena. Use that five times and you own it. You'll be able to use it at dinner parties. That means that word only occurs once in the entire Bible. And what it means is to incite a revolt. So literally, Jesus is saying that the gospel in his coming brings revolt and division in normal familial relationships. That's what he's showing us. That's how the gospel comes into the world. It comes bringing division. Why? Is the problem the gospel or is the problem the unregenerate world that doesn't like the gospel? Well, of course, it's the latter. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 1.18. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1.18. What you and I have to know is that because natural men and women born into this world hate the gospel, of course, it's going to be divisive. Again, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1.18. I'm going to show you a passage that Bob had taught us excellently on some months ago. But let me say to you, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 1.18, something Jesus said in John 3.19. In John 3.19, Jesus said that when the light, meaning himself, came into the world, men love the darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. So notice Jesus is saying that when the light came, the messianic light... Men preferred the darkness because they love their evil deeds. Uh, Bob had mentioned the great lie from the garden in Sunday school today. What's the great lie from Satan when he tempted Eve? He said, you won't die if you eat the forbidden fruit, but you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Every single person that's unregenerate wants to be their own God. And they want to live in the pet sins that they've created in their lives. They don't want to turn from it. And that's why Paul said, notice 1 Corinthians 1.18. He said, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So, of course, when the gospel comes into the world, it's going to be divisive. It's not going to bring unity. Why? Because the vast majority hate the gospel. The vast majority of the unbelieving world. Now, dear ones, notice verse 36 again shows us the extent of the division. Notice he says, a man's enemies will be members of his own household. Jesus is telling us that human nature is so depraved that there will be family members that turn against other family members all over the sake of the gospel. And we're going to explore later in our applications that we as believers in Jesus Christ are never to be those who merely create divisions and strife just for the sake of having divisions and strife. God forbid. And I know that there are some of you out there today, you have unbelieving spouses or family members that you get along with. That's wonderful, and I hope that relationship continues. What Jesus is telling us, however, is that the sin nature is so profound in this world, that oftentimes even family members will betray one another all over the gospel. That's what he's revealing to us. Now, as we go on to verses 37 through 39, Jesus reminds his followers that we must place our love for him above all other relationships. Notice what he says. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. 
And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice here where he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The term worthy there, axios, I had mentioned earlier in our studies in Matthew 10, that what it ends up meaning in Matthew is that the only way you are worthy of Jesus Christ is to be found in the faith. Now, don't misunderstand. That's not what axios worthy means in and of itself. I'm telling you the way Matthew uses it. Matthew is using it so that you know the only way that you are worthy of Jesus Christ is by being found in the faith. What Jesus is saying is if you are found in the faith and therefore you are worthy of him, well, then you're not going to love your father and mother more than him. And if you are really found in the faith and therefore worthy of him, you're not going to love a son and daughter more than him. And if you're really found in the faith and therefore worthy of Jesus Christ, you're going to be even willing to pick up your cross. That's how it's being used. You'll be willing to even suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, dear ones, I want you to notice as Jesus says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he goes on to use other familial relationships. He is not telling us that you and I as believers are to despise or not love our biological family members. In fact, I'll show you later that we as believers are called to love and serve our families. So much so that if we don't provide for our own biological families, as it says in 1 Timothy 5.8, we are worse than an unbeliever. What he is simply saying, Jesus as God is saying to us that we ought not to violate the first commandment. Thou shall have no other gods before him. We'll talk more about that in our application. But I want you to notice here in verse 38, Jesus says something that is exceedingly shocking. He calls us to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel by saying, whoever does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. You and I look at the term cross after 2,000 years of Christian history, and it's a sweet symbol of Christ's redemption of us. In fact, we have jewelry with crosses on them. But I want you to remember, this is prior to the substitutionary of death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so for the Jew, the cross was a cruel piece, a tool, as it were, used by an executioner who would often murder Jews that they knew in a humiliating way. In fact, there was a Roman general, Varus, who in 4 BC crucified 2,000 Jews. And he did so not just to kill them, but to humiliate them. And so as Jesus says, hey, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me, it would be very much like saying to a Jew in 1946, unless you're willing to take up your gas chamber and follow me, you're not worthy of me. It's shocking. It's shocking. In fact, he doubles down in something very significant. Notice in verse 39, this is in some sense the key to the entire passage. He says, he who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. How significant is verse 39? It's so significant 
that in fact it's the most often quoted verse of Jesus in the entire New Testament. You see it here in Matthew 10.39. You'll see it again in Matthew 16.25. You'll see it in Mark 8.35. You'll see it in Luke 9.24. You'll see it in Luke 17.33. You'll see it in John 12.25. Six times in the Gospels, this phrase is reiterated. Why? Because the core issue is that if you really have genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to be willing to sacrifice temporary life that you can never hold on to if you think about it anyway. And you're going to be willing to sacrifice that for the eternal life that the Lord Jesus Christ alone gives. And so all through verse 39, you have a juxtaposition between a temporary life and eternal life. So for example, notice he says, He who has found his life. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, because you and I are all born physically into this world, we already have physical life. So you don't just find physical life. You already have that. So obviously he's referring to finding what? Everlasting life through faith alone and Christ alone. That comes by being born again. So if you're born again and you have trust in Jesus... You found eternal life. Therefore, you're willing to lose what? Your temporary life. A life that you may have to lose because you proclaim the gospel and the world hates it. And dear ones, you and I are called to perhaps even shed this mortal coil all for the sake of the gospel. He says the same thing again. And he who has lost his life, that would be the temporary life, will do what? We will find it will find everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is preparing believers here for the persecution, the division that comes in the church age. The good news is that this age is one day going to end because the Lord Jesus is going to come through the clouds for his people. And at that point, it is only those who have fled by faith to Jesus Christ who are going to have everlasting life. It's the only life that really matters. Okay, now, with that, let's come to some applications. I have three of them for you here this morning. Number one, we must know that Christ's first coming brings division and not peace. What I want you to think about as you go out the door today is many people will say to you, why do you contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints? That creates disunity. Why do you preach the word in season and out of season? That just brings disunity. No, dear ones, what you and I have to know is that we were promised to bring disunity by being those of the gospel. So we have to keep being people of the gospel. Number two, we must understand that believers have moral obligations to family, but our highest obligation is to Christ alone. Love and serve your family You serve and love Christ above all. That's what we learn here today. Number three, we must truly believe that living for the future resurrection is worth physical death here and now. We have to believe that. If we don't, we won't ultimately serve Christ. Okay, let's look at our first one. What I want you to think about is that today, I think Jesus' sober words that the world, in fact, will hate us because of his gospel, I think that stands in stark contrast to many in the, Christendom or in the culture today that claim that we have peace, peace, when in fact there is no peace. 
Their claim is that the gospel only brings peace. And so if you contend for the faith, you're the problem. If you preach a divisive gospel, which is the true gospel, you're the problem. What I want you to realize is that the people of God have always been infected with this attack that the gospel and the good news of Christ or God in the Old Testament was only meant to bring peace. I want to show you from Jeremiah chapter 6 that this was a problem even in Judah's day. Remember, Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because he was rejected over and over. He was thrown in a cistern. I had the opportunity to study Jeremiah verse by verse some years ago, and I counted how many times Jeremiah was rejected. Do you know that he was rejected 37 times if you count them all up? I think that's right around the, the correct count. 37 times. Why? Because Jeremiah said, hey, there's no peace because the wrath of God abides upon you. And what did the world say to him in his day? Well, that's divisive, Jeremiah. Why don't you just go into the cistern? Notice what Jeremiah said. He said, for from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for gain. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, meaning they didn't do it at all. What were they saying? Peace, peace, but there is no peace. The true prophet Jeremiah said, you don't have peace. You have the wrath of God coming upon you at the hands of the Babylonians because you Israelites, you people of Judah, are living no differently than the unregenerate world. The people of Judah had gone after false gods. They had become apostate. And God, remember back in Deuteronomy 27 and chapter 28, he had promised the Israelites that if they would serve him, that he would give them a bumper crop and he would protect them from all of their enemies. That, those are the blessings given at Mount Gerizim, Deuteronomy 28. But he also promised them that if they wouldn't serve him, if they would worship the false gods of the other nations, he would bring a curse upon them. The curses were spoken at Mount Ebal. And how many curses were there? There was 12. There was 12 curses, one for each tribe. And I don't know how many in here have ever been to Israel, but if you go to Israel and you see Mount Gerizim where the blessings were given, and you look at Mount Ebal where the curses were given, the mountains reflect blessing and cursing. Look at Mount Gerizim where the blessings were given. It's lush. There's animals, there's foliage, it looks life-giving. Go to Mount Ebal, it's barren, there's no life on it. It's like a rock and it's as if God was saying, hey, if you don't want to serve me, you're going to look like Mount Ebal. All the curses that will come upon you. That's what Jeremiah is warning about. You don't have peace with Yahweh, you have wrath coming. But those in his day didn't want to hear it because they only wanted to hear that God was at peace with them. They were claiming peace, peace, when there was no peace. And what I'm claiming to you is that that's the way it has been in American Christendom. In many mainline churches going from the 20th into the 21st century, the call was for peace and unity uber allus above all. And the result of it was that when the true gospel was taught, and when the scriptures were actually brought to bear, Many said, I don't want to hear it. I only want to hear that which brings peace, just like Israel. So the church becomes dumbed down. They live no different than the world, much like Judah did in their day. 
And so if you enter in as a believer into this culture, the unbelievers in Christendom say, hey, how dare you contend for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints as you're commanded to do in Jude 3. That's divisive. How dare you preach the word in season and out of season as you're called to do in 2 Timothy 4.2. That's divisive. How dare you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things that Jesus Christ commanded. Don't you know that that's divisive? That's what they're going to say to you. And what we have to say in response is, well, that's the point. It divides between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. I think one of the big problems, to be honest with you, that we have in Christendom in the mainline denominational churches was a faulty interpretation and translation of Luke 2.14. Now, why do I say Luke 2.14? Because it went out on so many Christmas cards. Everyone who has a Christmas cards, card that goes out has Luke 2.14 on it. Let me point out the issue. So think of the thousands and thousands of Luke 2.14 Christmas cards going out with the King James version on it. The King James is backed up by six manuscripts from the Greek, the Texas Receptus. Notice what it says, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Notice here the goodwill. That comes from a nominative, eudokia. That's the term. It's a nominative in the Greek but it's probably not original. That more than likely was added by a later redactor. How do we know that? Because now in the critical text, we have thousands of manuscripts that we can compare, and we know that it's actually not to be in the nominative, it's actually to be in the genitive. And notice the difference. Luke 2.14 is correct where it says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The idea behind Luke 2.14 in the King James Version is that God is universally at peace with all men in sending Christ. Uh, That's not true. What Luke 2.14 says in our modern versions is that peace comes from God only to the elect, those who will be brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what the text is actually teaching. In fact, let me read to you from a man named Bruce Metzger. Every single seminarian student, when you go to seminary, you get a little booklet on textual criticism. And so it helps you establish the text, which is the best reading from the Greek. We all are given this manuscript, and I want to cite from it. This is a textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, page 111. Bruce Metzger says this, it's good. He said, quote, not only is the genitive reading better attested, that's what we have in our modern versions, but it is more difficult than the nominative. So let me just stop there. What does that mean? It's more than likely the original. That's what he's driving at. Then he goes on to say this. Listen, he says, the meaning seems to be not that divine peace can be bestowed only where human goodwill is present, but that at the birth of the Savior... God's peace rests on those whom he has chosen in accord with his good pleasure. 
peace is not universally distributed to all human beings because Jesus Christ came. It only comes upon those who will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of the world is under the very wrath of God. And that's why when we go proclaim the gospel or we contend for the faith, people have an aversion towards it. Because, in fact, they are perishing. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the very power of God. I want to talk about the two different elements of God's wrath. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. The reason I want you to turn there is I want you to consider the stark reality that instead of there being peace, there really is warfare from God upon unbelievers. That's the situation we find ourselves in. So just like you, if you were living in Jeremiah's day, people didn't want to hear that there was wrath coming. They wanted to only hear peace, peace. But Jeremiah said, you know what? There is no peace. That's exactly what we learn for the vast majority of people who have not fled to Jesus Christ. Romans 1.18. Notice he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Stop there. That's present tense. So the idea there is depicting ongoing action. It is currently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, what element of wrath is this? This is God's hardening wrath. In theology, we call this reprobation. And what it is, it's where God hands people over to their sinful desires. You want to rebel against God and you want to do these sinful things? Go for it. And the result of it is we see in Romans 1.25 is that they end up worshiping and serve the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. That's the result of it. So the first element of God's wrath isn't one in which the unregenerate experience the actual fire, for example, of hell, but it's one in which they are hardened, handed over to their own sinful desires, so they continue being idolaters, that they don't flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, turn your Bibles ahead to Romans 2.5. Romans 2.5, this is the other element of God's wrath that will one day be experienced by all unbelievers one day eternally in the lake of fire. Romans 2.5. Romans 2.5, notice what he says. He's talking to the unregenerate. Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, so this is only for the unbeliever, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What that means is day after day, if you are an unbeliever, you can't see it. But what God is saying is that you are storing up wrath, accruing it with interest, so that the moment you breathe your last or Jesus Christ returns, it will be credited to you and you will be judged for it. And so do you see then how silly it is to say there's peace, peace, when there really is no peace? Brothers and sisters, sadly, the mainline denominational churches says, well, the Lord, the Lord really doesn't care about what you believe unless you're really sincere. 
As long as you're really sincere, the Lord doesn't really care. The Lord, they will say, doesn't care about doctrinal concerns. The mainline church says, don't divide, don't contend, don't preach, don't teach. Why? Because peace, uberalis, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Dear ones, today, Jesus Christ's words remind us that unity and peace, at the expense of confessing the truth of the gospel, it isn't peace at all. It's just helping the unregenerate parish in a kind way. Now, dear ones, I want to show you, I think, a common mistake that many of the Jews made in Jesus' day. And what they did is they said, hey, the Messiah, we know when he comes, he's going to bring peace upon the world. And they didn't realize that there was going to be two different advents. The first advent, he does not bring peace. He brings strife and division. It's after the second coming, as he rules and reigns, that peace comes. So, for example, Jesus said today in Matthew 10, 34, He said, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I want you to think of the average Israelite who knew their Old Testament fairly well. They thought, wait a minute, when the Messiah comes, he brings peace. In fact, they thought of Isaiah 9-7. Isaiah 9-7 says there will be no end to the increase of his government. This is all about the Messiah. Or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. What they didn't distinguish was between the first coming, Matthew 10, 34, and what would happen after his second coming, Isaiah 9, 7. That's what they didn't understand, but we have to. Why? Because we live on the opposite side of the cross. We live after the establishment of the new covenant, progressive revelation, the sending of the Spirit. We do know those things. And we do know that one day when Jesus Christ returns, there really will be peace. In fact, it says in Isaiah 2.4, one day the swords will be beat into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, and no longer will the nations learn war. I tell you, that sounds pretty good. But that happens not at the first coming, but after the second. What does that mean as you go out the door? Brothers and sisters, what it means is keep on contending for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints. They're going to say you're divisive. Do it anyway. It means that we are to preach the word in season and out of season, meaning all the time. What does it mean in season and out of season? In season means when they want to hear it, preach it to them. Out of season means they don't want to hear it, preach it to them. And they'll say, you know what, you're being divisive. Preach it anyway. You, as you go out the door... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all the things that the Lord has commanded. They're going to say it's divisive, but do it anyway. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to do it faithfully until he does return and establish peace. Okay, now let's go on to our other points here in our applications. One thing that Bob and I are committed to at Gospel of Grace is teaching the whole counsel of God. And today, I believe that that means that I would remind us of our responsibility that we have with our families and before the unbelieving world. And what do I mean by that? Well, you hear today in Matthew ten thirty seven that if we love our father or mother more than Christ, we're not worthy of him. And you can get the wrong impression that somehow we are called to be nasty or unloving or that we are called not to serve 
either those in the world or especially our families. That is not what Jesus is saying. That's not what he's calling us to. No, we have obligations before the unregenerate world and with our families. And so I want to start with the world. Notice something very important that Paul, again, an authoritative spokesman for Jesus Christ as an apostle, notice what he says to all of us. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, notice, first of all, we are to be at peace with all men. That's the desire. But he also says, so far as it depends on you. Meaning, we aren't to be the instigators of the division, But sometimes the division, the lack of unity, the sword, the warfare, the strife, it isn't up to us. Why? Because the unregenerate world is cruel. They attack the innocent and they go after the believer. But the point is, as much as it depends upon us, we're going to be those who want to live peaceably with all men. We don't allow evil to prosper. We stand against those who harm the innocent and we stand against false doctrine. And in so doing, the strife comes. But as much as it depends upon us, we're going to live peaceably with all men. Now, let me show you our obligations before our families. The Apostle Paul also said this in 1 Timothy 5.8. He said, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Notice, far from us not loving our families or abandoning them all for the sake of Christ, we are called to love them and serve them. In fact, if we don't, we're worse than the unbeliever. Now, we're also called, according to Galatians 6.2, to bear one another's burdens, that is, the family of Christ. What I want you to see today is Jesus warned today that gospel, his gospel brings strife, It doesn't bring peace in the church age. But the lack of peace and strife should not be instigated by us. That's the point that I want you to see. It just naturally is a byproduct of those who stand for the truth and love. That's what we are to understand. Okay, now, let me go to this next one. I think it's important that we weigh our obligations to our families and the world with the love that we must have for Christ. And why do I say that? Since human beings, dear ones, are in a fallen state, we are prone to making idols. In fact, so sinful are we that we can make idols of anything, including even our own family members. And that's why Jesus said today in Matthew 10, 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, we've just looked at our familial obligations in the previous slide. We are to love our families. We are to serve them. We just can't make them into idols where we worship and serve them more than Jesus the creator. And so what Jesus is pointing out is sometimes division will come between family members and you because of the gospel. You stand for the gospel, they won't stand for the gospel. Hence the division. And so I know one of the big issues in our culture today that's really hitting a lot of families has to do with people dividing over transgender relationships, dividing over homosexuality and those types of things. I want you to understand 
that we have to stand for the truth. That we have to be those who don't participate in their evil deeds. And so I want to give you two principles. How is it that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ who happen to have maybe a homosexual relative or someone who is maybe in the transgender movement, how should we deal with them? That's creating a lot of division. Well, I want you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5.11. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians 5.11 through 13. 5.11 through 13. The way this scenario often goes as you're turning there, again, Ephesians 5.11 through 13, is you'll have a believing parent who wants to obviously love their child, but also wants to stand for the truth of the gospel to honor Jesus Christ, but also for the good of their unbelieving child. It doesn't do your unbelieving child any good to not stand for the truth of the gospel. So they want to do that. And one of the principles that I think we see in Scripture is that we love the sinner, but we stand against the sin. And so one of the ways we do that faithfully is we don't participate in the evil deeds of the unregenerate. Meaning, if your child wants you to come to the homosexual marriage, you love the child, but you say, I will not participate in that marriage ceremony. Because that's an attack on the doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ, who reiterates that marriage is between one man and one woman. He'll say that in Matthew 19, it's a reiteration of Genesis 2.24. And so notice why we should not participate. Paul tells us, Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Stop there. That's part of contending for the faith. Once and for all handed down to the saints, you expose that which is at odds with the scriptures, the doctrines of Christ. Verse 12, he says, For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them, that's the unregenerate, in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. What do we do? We don't participate in the evil deeds of our unbelieving family members. We expose it in light of Scripture in a loving way. That's what we're called to do. Don't go to the same-sex marriage but love them and have a dinner with them and say, this is why I won't go. This is what the scriptures say. I want the best for you. The wrath of God abides upon you. I love you and I want to see you in the kingdom forever. That's how we show them. Uh, Let me give you another principle. Not only are we not to participate in the evil deeds of the unregenerate, we are not to in any way financially support them. So, for example, if a Jehovah Witness who is a friend or a family member says, hey, you know, I'd really like you to contribute to my ministry, I'm not doing it. Why? Because I will not give aid and comfort to those who are attacking the true doctrine of Christ. Let me give you a passage that supports this. Turn your Bibles to 2 John 10 through 11. 2 John 10 through 11. Please turn your Bibles there. 2 John 10 through 11, here John is going to show us that we ought not to give financial support to anyone who brings a different teaching than what we have in the scriptures. Notice 2 John 10 through 11, John says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. Now stop there in verse 10. Notice You're not to receive them if they don't bring this teaching. What teaching? The teaching that you have 
in the scriptures. The, this teaching that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. Notice verse 11, he says, For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Essential to understanding 2 John 10 through 11 is understanding what it means to receive and to greet. Because if you get this text wrong, you will come away with a false idea that if the Jehovah Witness comes up your sidewalk to your doorstep, you can't say hi and contend for the faith with them. That is not what John is prohibiting. The greeting and the reception had to do with giving financial support or more than likely material support in the ancient Near East for an itinerant traveler. Why was that so essential to the traveler? Because they didn't have the Motel 8 Tom Bodell leaving the light on for them. That's why. They didn't have a Holiday Inn to go to. So the only way that they could survive is someone would receive them into their home and take care of them. So the way that translates to us is that you and I certainly can debate the Jehovah Witness, but we don't give money to the Watchtower organization. We don't financially support organizations and groups, false religions, cults, etc. that are at odds with the gospel. We love that family member who may be into it, but we don't support it. We don't participate it. Instead, we expose the deeds of darkness. We contend for the faith once and for all, handed down to the saints. Brothers and sisters, I know many of you have done this here. I know many of you in here have lost family members. And I want you to know that what God has promised you is that even if you lose family members that are precious to you over holding firm to the gospel, Jesus Christ himself has promised you the family of God. That the moment you believed in Jesus Christ, you were adopted into an eternal family that will never go away. In fact, I want you to see something that we'll be coming to in Matthew. Matthew 12, 48. Remember, this is when Mary and the brothers of Jesus are looking for him. And word goes from a messenger to Jesus. I think he's in a home preaching or teaching. They say, hey, your mother and your, your brothers are looking for you. Notice Jesus' response. Matthew 12, 48 through 49. It says, but Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. Brothers and sisters, never give up on preaching the word of Christ. Never get up, give up on witnessing and praying for your lost loved one. Always love them. Always give them the gospel. Pray for them, love them, but do not capitulate. Don't participate in their deeds and don't give to their wayward ministries. Love them, preach, for the, preach to them, pray for them. That's what we're called to do faithfully in Christ. Let me leave you with the final point today. The final point I want to leave you with is in some sense the key to sanctification, the key to perseverance, which is believing and living for the future resurrection. In today's pericope, Jesus exhorted all of us to be willing to give up our temporary life in order to have everlasting life. In fact, we saw that in Matthew 10, 39. He said, he who has found his life will lose it. You'll lose your temporary life. And he who has lost his life for my sake, that's your temporary life, will find it. What will you find? You'll find everlasting life. 
And so throughout the New Testament, what we learn of believers is that you and I can't lose. That's why the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Because you can't lose. Heads we win, tails we don't lose. If you live, you're living for Christ. If you die, you go to be with Christ. Either way, you're Christ. That's the message of the New Testament. It's not just that the moment you believed you would have eternal life, you have it now. You have it now. And so that's the great promise is one day we will in fact experience the resurrection and the glorious kingdom. In fact, in Revelation 20 verse 6, notice what John says under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. A thousand years, by the way, that's the millennial kingdom. What does it mean in blue? Where it says, over these, the second death has no power. The second death is the lake of fire. For all those who trust upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you really don't have to experience ever the second death. In fact, for us, death is exceedingly transitory. Death only occurs to us for a fraction of a second where there's a separation of body and soul. And then it's over. Because immediately... After the separation of the body and soul, your soul goes to be with the Lord in the new Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because Jesus said so. Jesus told, remember the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 43? Remember the thief? He says, Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, today, truly, I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Where is the very paradise of God? It's in the new Jerusalem. So the moment you should die as a believer you immediately go to the paradise of God. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What happens one day that's being referred to here in Revelation 20 verse 6 is that your physical body will be reunited to your soul and you will be given a resurrected life, a resurrected body, and an eternal kingdom forevermore. That's the great promise. And so what ought we do in light of that fact? Keep on contending for the faith once and for all handed down to the saints, even though it's divisive. Keep preaching the word in season and out of season, even though it's divisive. And keep making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, in the Holy Spirit, in teaching them all that Jesus Christ has commanded, even though it's divisive. Because you, dear brothers and sisters, have everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for your promises. We're grateful, Lord, that you've warned us in advance as to what this church age will look like that oftentimes we will be hated all for the sake of your truth and your gospel. But you've made us this great promise that for those who trust in you, there really is no death. There's just the new Jerusalem. There's the resurrection and the glories to follow. And any death that may come to us now is fleeting and transitory. We pray, Lord, we'd reflect upon that and that through this, you would give us courage 
to proclaim your gospel, to contend for the faith, even when people don't want to hear it, even when the world wants to say peace, peace, and there is no peace, Lord, we pray you'd give us opportunity and courage to proclaim your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.